Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season. No matter what time of year it is, it can strike. So don't wait to vaccinate. Visit shinglesseason.com. Hello and welcome to the November 21st, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know about the new articles that you'll find if you go to annals.org. This is a busy week for U.S. listeners who are getting ready to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday, so let's get started. COVID-19 is no longer pandemic status, but it is still very much with us, and the first article I'll mention is useful as we counsel patients with acute COVID about antiviral therapy. Nermatrelivir ritonavir, commonly known by the brand name Paxlovid, is an oral antiviral widely used in the United States to reduce the incidence of hospitalization and death among individuals with mild to moderate COVID who do not require hospitalization but are at risk for severe disease. Many patients who are not at high risk also seek treatment. Soon after its adoption into clinical care, reports of clinical and virologic rebound began to surface. Symptoms would improve and tests would turn negative, and then tests would come positive again, often with the recurrence of symptoms. However, it is uncertain whether this phenomenon occurs more frequently with treatment than without. Researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital studied 127 patients with acute COVID-19 to compare the frequency of virologic rebound in 72 patients who did and 55 patients who did not receive nermatrelivir or ritonavir. The primary outcome of the study was viral rebound within three weeks of an initial positive test, defined as either a positive SARS-CoV-2 viral culture following a prior negative culture or sustained elevated viral load. All patients received monitoring by both PCR and viral culture three times per week for two weeks. The data showed that virologic rebound with replication-confident prolonged viral shedding occurred in approximately one in five individuals taking nermatrelivir or ritonavir. Only one untreated patient experienced virologic rebound. A mathematical model showed a trend towards higher rates of rebound with earlier treatment initiation from index-positive tests and with earlier initiation from the onset of symptoms. This observational study has important limitations. Notably, the patients who did and did not receive treatment differed with those receiving antiviral therapy being older, having received more COVID-19 vaccinations, and being more likely to be immunosuppressed. Despite these limitations, these findings should be considered when weighing the benefits and risks of nermatrelivir ritonavir treatment in patients at low risk for severe disease. For patients at risk for severe COVID-19, the clinical benefits associated with antiviral use are well established. However, if rebound occurs, it appears that patients are shedding active virus and are likely still infectious and should continue measures to prevent spread to others. Next is a randomized controlled trial that included more than 300 people diagnosed with chronic spontaneous urticaria that found that acupuncture may offer limited symptom relief from the condition. Chronic spontaneous urticaria is a common form of chronic hives and is characterized by recurrent episodes of pruritic skin lesions lasting more than six weeks in the absence of triggering factors. The itching can be severe and disabling, so the management of itching is one of the main goals of therapy. Researchers from Chengdu University of Traditional Chinese Medicine randomly assigned 330 persons diagnosed with chronic spontaneous urticaria to receive either four weeks of acupuncture, four weeks of sham acupuncture, or be placed on a wait list as controls, and then followed the patients for four weeks after treatment to investigate whether acupuncture leads to improvement of symptoms. 
Changes in symptoms were measured using the weekly urticaria activity score, or the UAS7. Patients in the acupuncture group reported improved UAS7 scores more than sham acupuncture or weightless controls. However, differences between intervention and control did not meet the minimal clinical difference threshold identified in the study protocol, so the clinical significance of the observed reductions in itch severity is uncertain. The rate of adverse events was highest in the acupuncture group, but events were mild and transient. An accompanying editorial highlights that these trial results are interesting because they describe the efficacy of acupuncture in a condition that is not characterized by pain. While the clinical significance of the findings for chronic urticaria was unclear, the editorialist urges clinicians to stay open to the potential for adjunctive use of acupuncture to influence outcomes, even in other medical conditions. The editorial suggests that acupuncture is often overlooked as therapy because it lacks the commercial backing of other modern interventions. There is growing concern that clinical growth is outpacing the growth of traditional educational opportunities at academic medical centers. The next article reports a qualitative study involving 39 large academic centers in the U.S. that aim to understand the impact of clinical demands on the educational mission for academic hospital medicine physicians. Participants were hospital medicine leaders who oversaw academic and clinical efforts of hospital medicine programs. Three key things emerged. First, academic medical centers' disproportionate clinical growth highlighted the tension between clinical and educational missions. This included a mismatch in supply and demand for traditional teaching time, competing priorities, and clinical growth. Second, hospitals still have a strong preference for traditional teaching methods. To address this mismatch, hospital medicine groups have had to alter recruitment strategies and build more innovative solutions to help build academic careers. Third, participants noted a need to reimagine the role and identity of academic hospitalists, emphasizing tailored career pathways and educational roles spanning well beyond traditional house staff teaching teams. While hospital medicine groups have implemented numerous creative strategies to address clinical growth and keep education front and center, Challenges remain, in particular, high clinical workloads and a continued dilution of traditional teaching opportunities. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is breast cancer screening and prevention. Go to annals.org to read the review and earn CME and MOC credits by completing the accompanying quiz. Declines in cardiovascular mortality have stagnated over the past decade in the United States, driven in part by an increase in deaths among middle-aged adults. There is growing concern that these changes have been concentrated in middle-aged adults with low incomes, a population that is disproportionately affected by social determinants linked to poor cardiovascular health. However, little is known about how the burden of cardiovascular risk factors has changed among middle-aged adults by income level over the past two decades. The next article reports a study of middle-aged U.S. adults that found that lower income was associated with an increased risk for hypertension. However, middle-aged adults with higher incomes were to increase risk for diabetes and obesity. In this study, researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School studied national health and nutrition examination survey data for 20,761 adults aged 40 to 64 years from 1999 through March 2020 to evaluate trends in the prevalence, treatment, and control of cardiovascular risk factors among low-income and higher-income middle-aged adults to learn more about the contribution of social determinants to cardiovascular health. The data showed that low-income adults had an increase in hypertension over the study period, 
with 44.7% of low-income adults diagnosed with hypertension by 2020. There were no changes in rates of diabetes or obesity in low-income adults. In contrast, higher-income adults did not have a change in hypertension, but had increases in diabetes and obesity, with 44% of higher-income adults having been diagnosed with obesity by 2020. Income-based disparities in hypertension, diabetes, and cigarette use persisted in more recent years, even after adjustment for insurance coverage, healthcare access, and food insecurity. According to the authors, these findings suggest that targeted public health and policy initiatives to improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of cardiovascular risk factors are needed. Next is a report evaluating state requirements for physicians continuing medical education that found that only 12 states had implemented continuing medical education related to cultural competency, implicit bias, and other topics relevant to anti-racism. In 2021, after nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, medical organizations advocated for incorporating education about racial justice and health equity in physicians' training. The rationale for educating physicians about racial justice is that they play a key role in perpetuating racial health disparities through various mechanisms, including biased clinical decision-making and verbal and nonverbal communication. Although existing research describes the state of health equity and anti-racism education in medical schools and residency training, little is known about such topics in practicing physicians continuing medical education. Authors of this report analyzed data on accreditation requirements for each state to describe state licensing requirements for anti-racism education for U.S. physicians. The authors reviewed these requirements for mentions of terms including race, racism, anti-racism, equity, cultural competency, implicit bias, cultural awareness, and linguistic competency. They found that 12 states currently require anti-racism training with varying frequency and topics and 11 of those 12 states began training after 2019. They noted that New Jersey specifically requires training for health professionals working in perinatal care. An accompanying editorial by Drs. Fancher and Campo from University of California at Davis notes that this report comes at an opportune time as medicine grapples with racism and its role in perpetuating health inequities. Implicit bias training may influence how individual physicians treat patients, but the editorialists emphasize that how those biases contribute to health disparities and what constitute effective training warrant careful study. Go to annals.org to watch a brief video of the editorialists discussing their perspective on this important topic. A research report evaluating pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic pain management therapies found that one in four persons with chronic pain used only pharmacologic interventions to manage their pain despite recommendations to increase use of non-pharmacologic alternatives. According to the authors, these findings highlight opportunities to increase non-pharmacologic therapy use among a variety of persons with chronic pain in the United States. In 2021, approximately one in five adults in the United States experienced chronic pain. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends maximizing non-pharmacologic and non-opioid therapies for pain as appropriate for the specific condition and patient. Researchers at the Centers for Disease Control analyzed data from the 2020 National Health Interview Survey to estimate the prevalence of use of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies among 7,422 adults with self-reported chronic pain. The analysis showed that over-the-counter pain relievers and exercise were the most prevalent pain management therapies used, 
and prescription non-opioids were used more than twice as often as prescription opioids, although most adults with chronic pain reported using both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies. Approximately one in four adults reported using only pharmacologic therapies. However, few persons, 1%, reported using prescription opioids alone to manage their chronic pain. According to the authors, these findings highlight opportunities to increase non-pharmacologic therapy use among specific populations with chronic pain, including males, older adults, those with lower household incomes, those with less educational attainment, those residing in the South, and uninsured adults. However, barriers to non-pharmacologic therapies, including cost and availability, remain a challenge for persons with chronic pain. Additional new material includes new on being a doctor essays, two new episodes of the Annals on Call podcast, one on malaria and the other on vaccination to protect against respiratory syncytial virus, and new ACP Journal Club summaries. That brings us to the end of this podcast, wishing all who celebrate Thanksgiving in the U.S. a safe and happy holiday and the opportunity to reflect on the things we are thankful for despite living in challenging times. Among the things I am thankful for, I am thankful for you listening to this podcast and reading Annals of Internal Medicine. I'm also thankful to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season. No matter what time of year it is, it can strike. So don't wait to vaccinate. Visit shingleseason.com.